Well, good morning, Chevrolet Baptist Church. It is a joy to, to be here with you this morning, and I send you greetings on behalf of First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro. We think of you often, pray for you often, and count it a privilege to be uh, just another gospel-preaching church that's partnering together for the sake of spreading the good news and, and, and seeing people come to Christ. So thank you for the honor of being here with you this morning to bring God's Word. Uh, I had a chance to be with some of your men uh, several weeks ago, and I was just profoundly encouraged by the men of your church, their godliness, their encouragement, their hunger for God's Word. It was just a really, really sweet time of fellowship. So I'm thankful for having Chevrolet time a couple times this month. It's been really, really good. Um, if you can take your Bibles out with me and turn with me to the, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Um, if you're looking at that black Bible that's in that chair beside you, that's found on page 979, and we'll be looking at the last part of chapter 6. I will be jumping around a little bit in Ephesians, but we're going to spend most of our time looking at, at verses 10 through 24 uh, this morning. You know, I wonder if you take a moment uh, to just reflect on the past year or two or three and just try to make sense of the various things that have happened to you or to your family or to the culture that we live in, the, the nation that we live in, and, and try to make sense of some of the changes or the good things that have happened, the bad things that have happened. Uh, my guess is with a moment's reflection, you might be left scratching your head trying to make sense of things. At some point asking yourself, what, what is God doing? Or how do I make sense of this? Maybe there's a particular trial that you or your family has gone through and you're left trying to make sense of your world being turned upside down. And, and quite frankly, sometimes life will feel like out of control, like, like something is just chaotic. Kind of like somebody, if you, if you can imagine just taking a cup of BBs and just pouring it on the ground and life kind of feels like that, those BBs scattering around. Everything's kind of going this way and that. There's no rhyme or reason to things it feels like, and those BBs are kind of bumping into each other. And if you imagine yourself as that little BB, sometimes bumping into another BB or a wall hurts. It's confusing. It's chaotic. It's hard to make sense of things. Well, if, if you can relate with that and you're wondering how to make sense of what's happened this past year or two, and then you kind of look ahead of the future, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next year. But I, I can tell you where history is headed. And the reason I can tell you is not because I'm some prophet or because I'm really good at guessing the future, but I can tell you based on the authority of God's word. At the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul tells us God's plan from the very beginning. If, if life feels like scattered and everybody's doing whatever they want and hard to make sense of things. Paul says, listen, in Ephesians 1.10, he, he tells us God's plan is a plan for the fullness of time, where he will unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And as you walk through the book of Ephesians, we realize that at the center of this plan to unite all things in Christ, at the center of his plan is the church. So what we see in chapter 1, God calls a people to himself from every tribe and nation and tongue 
In chapter 2, we see how uh, God unites us. We were strangers and aliens. We were, we were, we were, we were enemies of God, but chapter 2 shows us how in Christ we're reconciled to God. And once we're reconciled to God, it, chapter 2 also shows us how we are reconciled to each other, how this unique and diverse people from every tribe and nation and tongue can be one new man in Christ. In Christ, the church is where God's, God begins to unite all things under Christ's feet. See that in chapter 1, verse 22. In other words, he takes people who were estranged from God, these BBs kind of going whatever way they wanted, and he brings them together under Christ's rule as the king. And so a church as a collection of individuals who are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other, a church being a collection of those individuals submitting to his rule, the church, even though it's far from perfect now, actually becomes a preview of where God is taking the world. It's a preview. The church is kind of like a sneak peek of where history is headed. So if you're looking at chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of the book of Ephesians, we're going we're gonna to see how uh, God is teaching us about our new identity in Christ. And then Paul shifts in 4 and 5 and 6 and says, okay, now based on who you are, based on this new identity, here's how I want you to live. And so chapters 4 through 6 apply those truths and call us to show us how to live in Christ, specifically how to live together as a church. You see that in chapter 4. Or how to live in the world. We see how to live our lives as husbands and wives in marriages in chapter 5. Or how families are to live together in chapter 6. Or how we are to live as those who are in Christ in the workplace. And so the, as the church lives out God's design, we do so so that through the church, Paul writes in Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, what, what God is doing in the church becomes a preview of where history is headed. It's a glorious picture, is it not? In my church, you can respond. It's a glorious picture, is it not? All right. All right. Our marriage, family, and workplace being shaped by the grace of God is a beautiful, glorious reality. It's what we long for. So why is church hard sometimes? Why can marriage or raising kids, or working our jobs, and trying to do those things God's way, why is it so difficult sometimes? We see this glorious picture of what Paul's painting in Ephesians. Why is it so difficult sometimes? Well, there's lots of ways we'd answer that, but the answer that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 6 is one of the reasons it's difficult is because of the devil. Satan hates God and hates God's plan for you and hates God's plan for the world. Satan does not want people to become Christians 
And once someone by God's grace does become a Christian, Satan does not want us to obey Jesus, and Satan is doing everything he can in his power to stop the church. He hates the church. And so knowing this, Paul ends this letter to the book, The Church in Ephesus, and he reminds us that church friends, what you're doing now and what we're doing throughout the week at Shelley Baptist Church, the church is not a vacation. You're not on a cruise ship. You're on a battleship because we are at war, a war with life and death, heaven and hell hanging in the balance. And so if that's true, if, the, if, there, if there is an enemy who wants to destroy the church, what hope do we have? What hope does Chevrolet Baptist Church have if the devil has Chevrolet Baptist Church in his crosshairs? How can we fight with hope and victory? After six chapters of showing us who the church is and how the church is to live, Paul ends showing the church how to fight. So, if you're taking notes, you don't have to, but if you are taking notes, point number one of the sermon is this. Be strong in the Lord. And I'm gonna, we're going to see that in verses 10 through 12 of the text. So look with me at chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right. So very simply, who are we up against? Verse 11 tells us we're up against the devil. Because the Bible teaches that the devil is real and not just a figment of our imagination, because the Bible teaches that the, Bible is, uh, the, the devil is a person not to be trifled with, this simple teaching that, that, that there is a, an evil, sinister Satan might be overwhelming. It might even leave some people paralyzed with fear. In contrast, other people will hear this teaching about the devil in Ephesians 6, and they don't think the devil is real. They might read Ephesians 6 and kind of roll their eyes. Their idea of Satan is just some guy dressed up in a red costume with horns and hooves and a tail. Because their thinking about Satan is more informed by the comic strips. You think of Farside, for example. Rather than being informed by what God's word says. And listen, if you think of the devil that way, don't take him that seriously. Kind of think of him as some cartoon character. The devil's okay with that because it makes his job a lot easier if we're just ignoring him or not taking him seriously. Now, people may say, the people that we come in contact with, maybe you're, you're one of those people here today, people may say that the devil is nothing more than a fairy tale, not real. But our instinctive response to evil that we see in this world proves otherwise. Just think about it for a moment. If our universe is made only of what you can taste and smell and touch and see and hear, 
with your physical senses, and that there is no spiritual world, there is no God, there is no angels or demons or devils. If it's just what you can touch and see, there is no rational basis upon which to be shocked or outraged at evil. Because those things that seem as if they're evil are just chemical reactions with that worldview and nothing more. But when a terrorist crashes an airplane into a skyscraper and thousands die, when millions of Jews are killed in gas chambers during World War II, when millions of people are kidnapped from their home, sold into slavery and treated as property, we look at things like that and we know deep down, no one has to teach us this, we just know that's evil. That's, that's, that's not just wrong, that's evil, that's, that's wicked. Christian or not, doesn't matter, those who are made in God's image, which is everybody, look at the evil in this world and we know that there is dark forces at play in this world. Now, when it comes to identifying the enemy, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we might assume it's that difficult neighbor that you live next to, or that boss who makes your life difficult, or that politician that you just that just irritates you when you hear them talking on the television, or it might be something that you just disagree with. But notice at the text, look, at, look again at verse 12. Paul writes, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So Paul says very early on, this fight is not with people. So your neighbor, your boss, the person that you disagree with, people may do awful things to you, and they may make your life miserable. But this fight that Paul's talking about, Ephesians 6, this spiritual battle is not against flesh and blood. Those people are not the enemy that he has in mind. So the people that you're tempted to think are the enemy in this sense are not. They're more like, they're more like a, a prisoner of war, a POW, who is being used by the real enemy in this fight. And lest we forget, we once, before we knew Christ, we also were once POWs. Paul says in Ephesians 2.2 2, that we were once following the prince of the power of the air. We were enslaved to him. We were POWs and God rescued us. So rather than hating the person and assuming they're the enemy, we should pray for them. We should share the gospel with them. We should love them in the hopes that God will rescue another POW, bring them into his family. Because we're fighting not against flesh and blood, blood. Verse 12 says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, some people will read verse 12 and they will see this fourfold statement that he's making in verse 12 as if he's ranking these different categories of demonic forces. 
But I just want to say, I don't think that's what the text is saying. I don't think that's what Paul means. I think um, to kind of assume there's this fourfold classification or hierarchy of demons that Paul is, is, is referring to in verse 12 is more speculation. It's not what the context supports. Rather, I think the point that Paul's making in verse 12 is simply that Satan and his demonic forces, his fallen angels that work with him, they are real. They're not a fairy tale. They're real. And they are intent on destroying you. Five times in verse 12, we see this word against, against, against. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, church, you're in a fight. There is something, there's a spiritual force that's against you. The devil and his demons are against you. We are at war. And we like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we like, we like Lord of the Rings. We like stories like the Chronicles of Narnia. We like stories like true biblical stories like David and Goliath. And we love those stories because there's something about this battle where for the protagonist, they're trapped, they're weak. There's no way out for them. But in the end, good triumphs over evil. You know, the hobbit defeats the orc. The white witch is vanquished. David defeats Goliath. And we love stories like that. Why we read them. But part of what Paul is saying to us this morning, church, is that we are not just spectators or readers of good stories like this. We are actually called to arms in a real spiritual battle to fight a spiritual battle that is of infinite significance. Do you realize that, Christian? So just, just think for a moment. What are you living for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Or, or if you're a young person, think about when you look forward to the future, what are, your, what are your plans for the future? What are your ambitions? What gets you out of bed or excited in the morning? Again, Paul is saying, friends, that, that this battle is not optional. Paul does not say, okay, I want you to put the armor of God in a suitcase and just bring it along in your life just in case. Kind of like, you know, like the Iron Man does, just in case. No, verse 11 says, put on every day. Put on the whole armor of God. He's not saying if you'll need the armor, you will need it. The question is not whether or not you're going to be in a battle. The question is, you are in a battle. Are you ready? Do you have the armor on? Friends, we should not settle for the, the distractions of this world that get us to belittle this fight or ignore this fight. We must not be distracted by the civilian pursuits of this world, whether those pursuits have to deal with entertainment or pleasure or comfort or getting the most likes on social media or pursuing wealth and and, and giving our life to those things. No, God has something far more glorious, far more important, far more real. It's something that's worth fighting for. So Paul says in verse 12, we must wrestle. We must fight. That's the command. But when you hear Paul, the apostle Paul say, wrestle, we must wrestle, don't, don't 
picture God as if he's on the sidelines. He tells us to fight, and then God's on the sidelines just kind of watching, hoping maybe the church will win, not really sure. He's, don't picture God wringing his hands up in heaven, not sure if we're going to make it or not. That's so far from the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians 6. Yes, we must fight. That's a command we must obey. We must wrestle. But the strength that we need in order to wrestle is not found in ourselves. Look again at verse 10. Be strong by going to the gym in your self-reliance, right? No. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I love that, that, that picture of the strength because that, that word for strength is the same great might that you see in Ephesians 1 verse 19. The same power, the same might that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him on his throne. That's the might, the strength that is available for us in God. So when you think about this fight, do not think of God and the devil as equal powers battling it out and we're biting our nails wondering who's going to win. No, that's, that's, that's not the way it works. They're not equal powers. The devil is a created being. God alone is the creator. And so as the creator of all things, including the devil, God alone has authority over all things. And so since the battle is fought with his strength, with the immeasurable greatness of God's power, there is no question who wins. So we fight. And there's a, there's a part that we do play in this. There is a command that we do obey, but we fight with the strength of his might. And God does this intentionally. God puts weak sinners like you and like me puts them together in a church. He puts weak sinners in a fight they cannot win on their own so that they learn to trust and rely on him, so that they learn how to be strong in the Lord. We can be strong in the Lord by putting on the armor of God. So first, we want to be strong in the Lord, but point number two is this. Point number two, stand firm in God's armor. Stand firm in God's armor. And, and this second point is, is verses 13 through 24. So look with me at verse 13 of chapter 6. Paul writes this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And just pause there. Notice in verses 11 through 14 that Paul issues the command to stand. There's your command. Verse 
11. Stand against the devil. Verse 13. Withstand in the evil day. Verse 13. Stand firm. Verse 14. Stand. So we've got a real enemy who's out to get us. Why does Paul call us to stand? Why not invade or advance? Why stand? Well, quite simply because Christ has already won the victory. <laughs> There's no need to, in that sense, invade or advance. The victory's already been won in Christ. Our job is simply to stand in that victory. The armor that we put on is God's armor. And this is not the first time this idea appears in the Bible. In the Old Testament, when God's people faced an enemy that they could not defeat, their sin, when there was no savior to rescue, the prophet Isaiah foretold of a Messiah who would put on his armor and this Messiah would fight for his people. So in Isaiah 11, verse 5, the Messiah put on, we're told, the belt of truth. Or in Isaiah 59, verse 17, we're told the Messiah puts on a breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. You can see where Paul gets these ideas. He's not making them up. He's grabbing them from Isaiah. The armor of God, in other words, that you put on is not clean. It's bloodied from the fight that King Jesus has already won. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and on the cross, he won the final victory for us. Colossians 2.15 talks about this, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So we fight, and we're commanded to fight, but we fight a defeated enemy. We stand firm by putting on God's armor. So look at verse 14 again. Stand therefore, there's the command, having fastened on the belt of truth. So again, we're able to stand by, first of all, fastening on the belt of truth. The devil, one of the things that really marks him is that he's a, he's a liar. The devil is a big, fat liar. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And one of the main schemes of the enemy, one of the main strategies of Satan is to deceive. We see him doing that to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he's been doing it ever since. It's why God's armor starts with the belt of truth. And notice that Paul says it's not a truth or your truth, but there's that definite article. It's the truth. The truth about God. The truth about us. The truth about the world that we live in as revealed by the Bible. So if you can imagine a Roman soldier in his uniform, the belt would hold all the other parts of the armor together. And the point is, if you take the soldier's belt away, all his armor falls off, or a lot of it falls off. So we start with the belt of truth. I wish we had time to go back and read Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. And, and, and one of the things I'd encourage you to do this afternoon is just to take uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes and read Ephesians 1 through 3. Because there's, no, there's, there, there's, there's one command in Ephesians 1 through 3, it's all, but it's, it's really just filled with statements of truth about God, about who you are, what he's done for us. 
The one command is just to remember those things. But in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul lays out all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are secure. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We were dead, but now we've been made alive in Christ. We've been set free from sin's enslavement. We are now seated with Christ, who has authority over all things. We are reconciled to God and other believers. We are given confident access into God's presence. Over and over and over, Paul just dumps the, the dump truck of God's blessings on us and reminds us, you, all God's spiritual blessings have been given to us in Christ. And all what we have in Christ is breathtaking. It's overwhelming almost. And it's, it's sufficient for all that we need. And it should radically change the way that Chevrolet Baptist Church lives their life together as a church. It should shape the way that you live your life together as a church. And so knowing that, knowing all that you have in Christ from Ephesians 1 through 3, the devil is doing everything that he can to deceive and to twist and distort and distract us from all the glorious truths that are ours in Ephesians 1 through 3. So one of the applications for us here is that we need a daily intake of God's word as Christians. Reading it, studying it, talking about it, memorizing God's word so that we can stand against the devil's lies. Put on the belt of truth, church. The second part of verse 14 says, the next piece here, and having, so stand therefore, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you're going to stand firm, you need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And it's important to note from the very beginning here that the breastplate of righteousness is not your accomplishments. Well, I've been a good person this week. It's my righteousness. No, it's the righteousness of Christ. Paul lists different pieces of armor, you know, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and so on. But Jesus is the truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our salvation. So in one sense, putting on the armor of God is another way of saying, put on the Lord Jesus. Because he is your salvation. He is your righteousness. He is the truth. Again, the devil is a liar. But the devil is also the great accuser. Right? And, 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 and he's, he is wicked. He is nasty. Because one of the things that he loves to do is tempt us to sin. Come on. Do it. It'll feel good. It'll provide you relief. It's okay. And then if you yield to that temptation and you sin, then he turns around and he points his finger at you. I can't believe you did that. You are awful. You are guilty. You are condemned. Why did you do that? And in one sense, when the devil accuses us like that, he is right. We are guilty of sin. 
But what the devil doesn't want us to see is the antidote to his accusation. The protection that we have against his accusation, which is the breastplate of righteousness. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 puts it this way. John writes, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, anyone a sinner here? Okay. We have an advocate, a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus, the righteous one, is our advocate. He is our defense against these accusations. And he silences the accusation of the devil, not by pretending that we didn't sin. Wink, wink, no big deal. No, he doesn't do that. He silences the accusations of the devil by saying, listen, I know that they sinned. I know Zach Schlegel sinned. But I gave my life for these Christians. I nailed the accusations of their guilt to the cross and paid in full the price of their redemption. And so, for those who are in Christ, Paul says, there is now therefore no condemnation. The accusations don't stick because we have a breastplate of righteousness. So brothers and sisters, if you've sinned and when you sin, look to Christ, who is your righteousness. Put on Christ. Put on the breastplate of righteousness to silence the devil's accusations. Perhaps you've heard the question used to persuade people today. Well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? Ever hear that? And the, the idea is it pressures us to think a certain way because you may think a certain way today, but they want you to come to their position because they don't, they're saying you don't want to one day at the end of history regret and find out that you were wrong at the end. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But when somebody comes to us and asks us that question, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? By what authority does anyone have to say what's right and what's wrong? By what authority does any person have to say, this is the right side of history, this is the wrong side of history? As our creator, God alone has the authority to declare this is right and this is wrong. As our creator, God is the one who has the authority to tell us this is where history is headed. And in his kindness, God tells us where history is headed in Ephesians. He is uniting all things together under the rule of King Jesus. That's where things are headed. So friends, if you're here this morning, maybe you've been visiting Chevrolet Baptist for years. Maybe this is your first time here. But regardless, if you're, if you're not yet a Christian, you may ask yourself, okay, why would I trust Jesus, though, if trusting in him puts me in the crosshairs of Satan? That's not a really good sales pitch. But I want to say that, that there is no neutrality here. 
There's no third option. You will either have the devil as your ruler, option one, or you will have Christ Jesus as your ruler. There's no middle way, there's no third option. Either Satan's your ruler or Jesus is your ruler. And being a Christian requires fighting sin and fighting for faith, but Jesus is a much better ruler than sin or Satan or you trying to be your own ruler. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, I want you to understand that the Bible reminds us that Jesus Christ is God, God's own son. He's God in the flesh. And as the son of God, Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience and trust to God the Father so that when he died on the cross, he was not dying for his own sin. He was dying in our place as our substitute if we are willing to turn from our sin and self-reliance and to trust in Christ. Christ died for our redemption, and then on the third day, he rose again, and he lives today, and he's seated on the, the, at the right hand of the Father to offer us, to offer you and I eternal life. Jesus came 2,000 years ago to die for sinners and to offer us eternal life, and Jesus has promised that he's coming a second time. And when he comes a second time, he will sit on his throne to rule as judge and we will give an account to him for our life the reason for the delay in his second coming is not because he forgot or not because he's slow the reason for the delay is because of God's patience he is giving us an opportunity to repent he's giving us an opportunity right now if you haven't yet to trust in Christ I pray that you avail yourself of that opportunity, that today is the day of salvation, that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ and receive his forgiveness and receive his cleansing and be united to Christ and forgiven. Because that is where history is headed. That will put you on the right side of history. Not because I think that, but because God, who is our creator, tells us that that is where history is headed. Well, knowing this good news, look at verse 15, church. Verse 15 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This next piece of armor we put on is our shoes. The devil hates the church. The devil wants to destroy the church, and he will do anything he can to keep us as a church from doing evangelism. He will do everything he can to keep Chevrolet Baptist from sharing the gospel right? If you have plans to share the gospel this week, he's going to try to make you so busy that you don't have time. He's going to make you so afraid, try to make you so afraid of what others think of you that you don't share the gospel. Or he will try to discourage you into thinking that, what's the point? No one's going to believe. No one's going to change. And if he can get you to believe that, then you won't share the gospel. He will do anything he can to get you and I from speaking up and sharing this good news. But as those who found peace with God and peace with each other through the good news of the gospel, we as Christians have the gospel of peace. We have good news 
to share with those who have not yet come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so we must be eager and we must be ready and unashamed to share the good news, this good news of peace. As the prophet Isaiah writes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, Paul goes on in verse 16, he says, if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to stand against the schemes of the devil, verse 16, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, the Bible, the Bible teaches us that God is our shield. God is our shield. Paul says, Paul calls it the shield of faith not because he's disagreeing with that, but he's saying he calls it the shield of faith because it's by trusting God. It's by having faith that we hide behind God as our refuge. The shield of faith is what is, is us stepping behind God who is our shield. So Proverbs 30 verse 5 puts it this way. God is a shield. For whom? For those who take refuge in him. You don't take refuge in God, that shield doesn't do you much good. But if you take refuge in God, you'll find that he is a shield for you. Sometimes we might go through a trial or some, uh, suffer some, some difficulty, and it, you know, it doesn't seem like faith offers us much protection. Our life still seems to be falling apart. Part of what Paul wants us to remember is that the faith that he's talking about here is not, just, is not just believing that God exists, but it's also believing that God is present in our life as Christians, that God is powerful, believing that God is good. Because friends, if you do not believe that God is powerful, you won't come to him when you're overwhelmed. If you don't believe that God is good, that he's for you, if you believe that God is against you, waiting to strike you with a lightning bolt, you're not gonna come to him for refuge. So it's not just believing that he exists, but it's also believing the truth about God as revealed in the scriptures, that he's also good. That if you're in Christ, he is for you. That he's present with you. That he's sovereign over all things. That there's no limit to his power. And when we believe that, even the intense pain and sorrow of life, Satan can throw his fiery darts of lies and deceit to get us to doubt his goodness. But with the shield of faith up, it will extinguish those darts. That's why it's again important that we don't base our faith upon how we feel in that moment or our specific circumstances in that moment, but we base our faith, our trust in God on the unchanging truth of his word. That way, no matter what happens today or tomorrow or what you feel like at 4 p.m., you can know that God is with you in the valley of death, that God is able to work all things for your good because he's sovereign and he is good and he is for you. Paul goes on in verse 17, another piece of armor. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. That helmet of salvation is the helmet that Jesus, our Messiah, wore into battle. The same idea that we saw in Isaiah 59, verse 17. By his own arm, Jesus brought 
us salvation. Jesus did everything necessary for our salvation so that his last words on the cross were, it is, it is finished. Not, it is 85% finished. Not even, it's 99% finished. And the rest is up to you. It is finished. 100% period. Done. And so when life, when life's curveballs make us doubt if I'm going to make it, the helmet of salvation is a reminder that he will hold us fast and he will get us all the way home because he has accomplished for us our salvation. It's the hope that gives, keeps us going even in the midst of hardship. Paul goes on in verse 17. In addition to the helmet of salvation, he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword that Paul has in mind here is not some you know, really long sword. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dagger. It's a short sword. It's meant for close hand-to-hand combat. And so while every other piece of equipment that we've looked at or armor that we've looked at is for the defensive protection, the sword is the piece of armor that is meant for attacking. It's meant for the offensive attack. So we see Jesus, when, when Jesus triumphed over Satan in Matthew 4, he actually models us, he models us for us. And, and, and the point of Matthew 4 there is that Jesus did what the first Adam failed to do, but he also models for us this fight. In Matthew 4, three times Satan came after him with temptation. And three times Jesus picks up the sword, the word of God, and he strikes the devil. And he wins. Friends, when we are faced with the temptation to lie or to lust, or whatever it is we're tempted with, our typical human response might be something to say, you know, we might, we might fight temptation by saying, but what if I get caught? Should I do this? What if I get caught? What will people think about me? Uh, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And so we don't, we, we, we use that as our reason for not giving into temptation. But as one writer notes, that's answering Satan with human reasons, not God's word. And instead of hitting the devil with a sword, when we use human reason like that, we're battling Satan with a pillow. The devil has been at this for a while. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He is a created being. But he's, he's been tempting and lying and deceiving people for thousands of years. So he knows he's good at what he does. And so our human reasons won't stand up to him. They won't work. He's, he's heard it before. So if we use human reasons, before long he'll answer our objection and we'll be thinking, you know, well, you know, it has been a rough day. Well... It's just this one time. Well, maybe they won't find out. Well, everybody does it. And we cave. Pillow. 
didn't stand up to the fight. James 4, verse 7, is a wonderful promise for us. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not might, it's a promise. Resist the devil, Christian, and he will flee from you. Well, how do we resist the devil? If we resist temptation with God's word, if we answer the temptation to lie with God's word and say, no, the Bible says, speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. If we answer temptation to lust, no, the Bible says, flee sexual morality. The Bible says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If we, if we answer temptation with God's word, Satan has no answer. He can stand up to your pillow and your human reason. He can weasel around that, but he cannot stand up to the living word of God. It's a fight. It's a vicious, bloody fight. But if you swing the sword of God's word and you resist with the word of God, he will flee. Friends, if we are to fight against sin and temptation, we must pick up God's word and fight. Is fighting sin and temptation hard? Is it easy for you guys? Do you ever feel exhausted by fighting sin and temptation? It's exhausting. And I think that's part of why Paul's command for us in this text is stand firm. Withstand. Keep standing. Don't sit down. Don't give up. Keep standing. And so if we are to stand firm, we need to put on the full armor of God. But if we are to keep doing it and not grow weary under the weight of all this fight, we must learn to rely upon God in prayer. Undergirding every piece of armor that we've looked at is prayer. The armor of God without a reliance on God in prayer is not much good. It's armor that doesn't do much good. So look at verse 18. Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer undergirds all of what we've said. Prayer is the fuel for all that we do in this war. One reason that we don't pray, I think, is because we don't grasp how real and how deadly our, the war over our souls actually is. We have this comic book figure of Satan in our mind. We don't take it seriously. Deep down, we don't think that we need God. We prefer the five-step plan that this is how you kill sin in your own strength. Prayerlessness shows that we're proud and self-reliant. Prayer is the language of humility and dependence on God. And Paul reminds us how we are to pray. He answers several questions about prayer. When, when are we to pray? According to verse 18. At all times. You never hang up the phone on God. You have a constant attitude of prayer throughout the day. 
Yes, we want to carve out time for special prayer, or that's the only thing that we're doing, but we never hang up the phone. We keep praying throughout the day. How should we pray? Well, Paul says, in the Spirit. That's not referring to speaking in tongues. It's prayer that is guided by God's Word and guided by His Spirit. Well, what kinds of prayer should we pray? Well, all prayer, all kinds of prayer, and supplication, which is asking God to supply what we need. Christians have often used the acronym ACTS, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. That acronym is a helpful reminder of what types of prayer we should be praying as a church. It's what's been been modeled even in this church service so far. There's been adoration, there's been asking God for what we need, Thanksgiving, we're going to confess our sins in a little bit. Well, who should we pray for? All the saints, he says. Pray for yourself, pray for your family, pray pray for the saints at at Chevrolet Baptist, pray for the saints around the world and other churches. To stand firm, we must learn to rely on God in prayer, and we must also lean on other brothers and sisters. This is the last thing we see in this text. Look at verse 21. So that you may also know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, you may, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So Paul sent Tychicus to the Ephesians, verse 22, that he may encourage your hearts. Why is, Tychicus, why is Tychicus coming to this church? That he may encourage your hearts. The battle that we're in is demanding. It's exhausting at times. It is at times discouraging. Paul reminds us in verse 20 that he's in chains. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. <clears throat> but instead of wallowing in self-pity, Paul's concern is for the church. Now, Paul was a human being. He had limits. He needed to be encouraged, too. But I think that he's able to be selfless and loving towards the church in Ephesus, even amidst his suffering. He's able to stand firm because he's wearing the armor of God. His friends like the church in Ephesus, you you and I cannot do this fight. We cannot win this fight alone. We need the encouragement of a Tychicus. We need to be a Tychicus to other weary saints. And as we stand together, as you stand together as Chevrolet Baptist Church, you will strengthen each other by the grace of God. Who are you a Tychicus to? Who do you need to be an encouragement to this week, to reach out to to pray with them and encourage them, check out how they're doing? Who, maybe you are in need of that. Pray for that. Let somebody know. I'm struggling. I need you to be a Tychicus to me. Our fight reminds me of the battle of Jericho that you read about in Joshua 6. God instructs his people to march around the city and on the seventh day, blow a trumpet. A trumpet, if you're in a war, a trumpet does not really strike fear in your enemy. I would rather have missiles Grenades, tanks, those are more ominous. But the people of God 
obeyed God. They marched around the walls of Jericho. They picked up their trumpets in obedience. And when they did, the walls came crashing down. And God's people took the city. When we think about the sinister cosmic powers over this present darkness, when we think about Satan and his spiritual forces of evil, and then we look at God's plan and his armor that he just laid out for us. Here's what you need for the fight. Righteousness, sharing the gospel, faith, prayer, the Bible, and coming to church each week. You may hear this plan and question God's plan. I mean, don't we need some missiles? Don't we need some tanks? And because the heavenly realm is invisible to us right now, there are going to be days where going to a prayer meeting or reading your Bible or preaching a sermon or going to church may seem weak and pointless and pathetic. It may seem weak to us because we can't see the heavenly realm, but not so to the devil and his angels. When the church lives as a church, the devil and his angels see the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God, and they see a preview of the end, and they see a preview of their end. And when the church functions as God has designed it, their knees tremble, I imagine. It's good news for us, it's bad news for them. So this, this side of heaven, we may be weary, we may be exhausted in this fight, and as one writer put it, our prayer meetings, our Bible reading, our sermons may feel like we're, we're shooting a spitwad at an enemy tank which has five-inch thick armor. But when the pea shooter hits the tank and, it, and, and we, we, we step out in obedience to what God is do, calling us to do and putting on the armor of God and being a church together, that church explodes into smithereens because of our spitwad. And it explodes to smithereens and all glory goes to God and his power. It happened at Jericho. It happened at the cross. And the church is a preview of the victory that God has promised for us. So, Chevrolet Baptist, be strong in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of his might, and put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. And I pray that you would help Chevrolet Baptist Church to stand and to withstand the devil and to keep standing, not in their own strength. May this church be a praying church. May this church be a church that, that members of this church help each other, remind each other of the truths of your word and may you protect them from the schemes of the devil and this world and our own sinful flesh. And by your grace, may they stand firm in the victory that is ours. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.